Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. It's the season, as you've seen, the decorations and the wonderful Christmas hymns. At this time, we have the wonderful privilege and opportunity to open God's Word and study it together. So please go ahead and grab a hold of the Word of Truth and find Mark 2. Mark 2. As you're turning there, uh, let me make one brief announcement. If you haven't read our newsletter or uh, the email I sent out a few days ago, on December 24th, Christmas Eve, is a Sunday. And we want to have a church fellowship meal afterwards. So if you don't have somewhere to be right after worship on December 24th, please stick around, enjoy some fellowship and a traditional Christmas meal as we celebrate the birth of our Savior together. I'm looking forward to that. But right now, what I'm looking forward to is the exposition of Mark 2, verses 18 to 22. I want to read those verses to you and allow it to steer our minds towards the person of Christ this very moment. Mark 2, beginning in verse 18, the Word of God reads, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come... When the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost. And the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. With this account that I just read, we discover the second episode involving Jesus and his chief adversaries. Which are whom? The Pharisees. A couple weeks ago in verses 15 to 17, we discovered that Jesus was introduced to them for the first time in the Gospel of Mark as they openly condemned his relationship with, quote-unquote, sinners and tax collectors. In verses 18 to 22, we see that same behavior of Jesus receiving more of the same type of questioning from the religious leaders. But what's different about this account is that Jesus' Jesus response is slightly different. He changes his tune. His answer is not abrupt and straightforward. As we'll see today, by the end of the message, his response to the Pharisees underscored an essential spiritual truth. That his message was diametrically opposed to self-righteous, works-based, merit-based, 
ritualistic religion. What Jesus said and what he meant in Mark 2, 19 to 22, 18 to 22 rather, is something that we all need to be reminded of today. Because we live in an age of increasing relativism, which is simply the thought that there are no absolute truth, truths. We live in an age of increasing pluralism, which is the idea that, that there are multiple paths to God. I'm sure you've sat in an intersection somewhere and you've seen a bumper sticker that says coexist in the form of all of the different religious symbols of the world. That's pluralism. They're sending a message saying that there's more than one way to God. We live in an age of ecumenism, which is simply the idea that, that all faiths, faiths and religion, religions can work together to accomplish the same task. We live in an age of agnosticism, which is simply the belief that knowledge about God is uncertain. We live in an age of increasing mysticism, atheism, deism, and what I call America's newest faith tradition, consumerism which is the view that professing Christians hold that God exists to serve me and everyone else exists to serve me. You guys realize that trend? So since we live in an age of all of those isms, we need to be reminded of what Jesus says in Mark 2, 18 to 22. If we allow any credence for all of those isms, we are doing nothing but giving some sort of false love, masquerading as tolerance. So I am here today, brothers and sisters, to remind you via God's word that the gospel of Christ is unique and exclusive. And it cannot, cannot coexist with any other alternative religious system or thought. Amen? The gospel isn't merely added to man's effort to save himself. The gospel replaces man's effort to save himself. The gospel simply isn't a better way or a better lifestyle or the best option among a slew of religions. It's the only way. The only way to have a true, personal, saving relationship with God. The gospel isn't ambiguous, nor is it complex. It's absolutely certain and simple enough for a young child to grasp. The passage that we'll look at today provides a crystal clear statement of the narrowness of the gospel. It contains two simple elements that we'll call the question in verse 18 and the answer in verses 19 to 22, which is why I've entitled this sermon Q&A with Jesus. Q&A with Jesus. When I was in seminary, there were a few things that really impacted me 
But the thing that impacted me the most was when we got to sit in chapel and just ask our professors and our president questions about whatever we wanted. Q&A. So now Jesus is going to engage with these men with some Q&A. Let's look at the question first, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, quick note about John's disciples. John's disciples are unconverted because they are not following Jesus. They had not yet come to grips with who Jesus really is. When John was baptized, excuse me, when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, do you remember what he said? John 1 declared, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in John 3, he proclaimed, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He must increase, I must decrease. So, in effect, the Apostle John, or no, excuse me, John the Baptist, never intended for men to follow him. From the very beginning, we see that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and preached, there he is. Follow him. But, evidently, some people didn't get it. There were men who remained loyal to John despite his clear and bold warnings. And the result of such stubborn hard-heartedness and blindness was that they remained unconverted. And as such, they became all the more enslaved and steeped in a dead religion that the Pharisees led. Last time I preached for Mark, I went into the background of the Pharisees pretty, pretty much in depth. So I won't rehash their history or theology today. I would encourage you to go listen to that sermon or do some study of the Pharisees on your own. But I, I do want to remind you about what the religion was. The religion was one of self-righteous external conformity to a onslaught of rabbinic traditions. And they had zero emphasis on the heart. So with that in mind, they, they observed... These Pharisees, they come and they see Jesus and his disciples, and they're not conforming to this extra-biblical tradition of fasting. And these Pharisees, they don't like what they see. They're so displeased, in fact, by this non-conformity to human tradition that they open their mouth and they flat-out challenge Jesus again. But before we get to that question, we all need to get on the same page about the subject of fasting. I know you guys, but I don't know the degree or depth of the teaching you've received about fasting. So let's get on the same page. Because we need to understand what the Pharisees meant when they asked the question. And partly because, you know, in Baptistic Bible churches like ours, we, we don't really talk about fasting, do we? It, it's not something we really do. And there's a reason for that. So we, we need to get on the same page here. So, first of all, why don't we fast? Why don't I emphasize that? Why don't we even really talk about it? Simply put, now, if, if you disagree, that's fine. 
We talk about it later. But the reason why I don't teach you to fast is because the New Testament doesn't. The New Testament does not command the Christian to fast. There are zero commands. Zilch. So, in order to have a sound biblical theology of fasting, what do we need to do? We need to go back to the Old Testament. Fasting, biblically defined, is when somebody limits or deprives oneself from an activity. Usually, it's centered around food or drink. Now, this is important. The only purpose of fasting was to take the focus off of the things of this world and to focus solely on the things of God. Now, for the Jews, in Jesus' time, it was required once per year on the Day of Atonement. We can read about it in Leviticus 16, that there was only one requirement to fast. Once per year, that was it, no more. However, the Pharisees, as I've alluded to already, did they care more about God's law or did they care more about human law? The latter, right? That's why we call the Pharisees, rightly call them legalists. A legalist is somebody who adds to the Bible and makes those additions the ultimate standard for spirituality But that's not it. They take their additions to the Bible and they impose it on other people. That's a legalist. And that's bad. Time and time again, Jesus condemns that religion of extra-biblical tradition. Because what does legalism do? It pulls you away from God's word very dangerous. So one of the many traditions or rules that these Pharisees made up was that fasting only on one day a year wasn't enough. So they made up this rule that said, if you want to be a faithful Jew, you better fast twice per week. So on those two days per week, they would be sure to be seen in public with a gloomy face so that everybody could see just how godly they were. Now, do you guys remember the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the publican who went to the temple to pray? You guys remember that parable? The Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Did you guys hear that? What's the the repetitive word in that passage? I. Another way to define legalism is a religion of me, myself, and I. Look what I do. Look how special and godly I am. This Pharisee, he was saying these things out loud so that all who were within earshot could know how faithful he was to his tradition. 
And so the Pharisees were those who were given to this type of fasting. So that once per year on the Day of Atonement, they do it twice a week. It was a vain attempt to commend themselves to God. More than that, as we see here, they judged others who weren't doing exactly what they were doing. Do you guys get the implication of this? If you have your own traditions and convictions, that's fine. But we must, especially in the church, in the local church, we must be very careful that we don't impose our personal convictions and traditions on others, even if it's tied to some ecclesiastical tradition. Okay? With all that in mind, now let's look at the question that they posed to the Lord. They came and said to him, notice they said it directly to him this time. Why? Because they were offended. They were offended by Jesus. If they were here today, they might cry out, where's my safe place? He's, he's messing up our culture and our, 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 our religious way of doing things. He can't do that. Who does he think he is? And so they come looking for a fight. And they ask, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, they were asking, like a good legalist, why aren't your disciples like our disciples? They were perplexed and they wanted to know where were the gloomy faces? Because the contrast between their disciples and the Lord's disciples was stark. The disciples of Jesus were happy. They were joyful. They were living without the burden of man-made tradition. But on the other hand, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they were bleak, sorrowful, and living a life carrying the back-breaking yoke of legalism. Now, before we go further, by way of application, I must point out that the saddest people on earth are those who are enduring their religion rather than enjoying a relationship with God. There are those in the church who endure religion. Then there are those in the church who enjoy the redemption. You've seen it. The sad, bitter, mean-spirited, judgmental, self-seeking people endure religion like the Pharisees. Today, there are people whose faith merely consists of going to church on Sunday while gritting their teeth. They show up once per week if it's convenient, only because it's part of a religious ritual. 
They come in, they sit down, they might complain. They go through the motions, they tap their watch, and they leave and continue on with whatever else they do on their routine. The whole time, they're miserable because they don't know the Lord. They are simply enduring religion because that's all they know. On the flip side, those who truly know Jesus, those whom have been adopted into his family, this is important. They come to church every week because they want to. And they want to come to church because they love Jesus. And they love Jesus because they know they've been forgiven. They generally want to fellowship with the saints. They want to sing hymns and spiritual songs. They want to hear the preaching and the reading of the word. And even more shockingly, they want to serve. They want to employ their spiritual gift for the edification of the body. If that's you, then you have solid evidence by which you evaluate your faith. But I have to be honest and say, if you came here today begrudgingly, if you have come here today just because going to church on Sunday is all you've ever known, if you walked into this room and purposed to keep one eye on the clock and one eye on me, then, my dear friend, you need to examine yourself and ask, earnestly ask, if I know Jesus or am I just enduring a religion as the Pharisees did? Let's turn our attention to the answer. We've seen the question. Now Jesus the master teacher is going to give these Pharisees the answer they deserve. In verses 19 to 22, Jesus does not give them a straightforward answer, as I said already. Rather, he responds to their question with three illustrations. First, an illustration centered on a wedding. Second, a piece of clothing. And third, a container made to hold wine. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them. Now, pause here for a second. I think it's very interesting to observe that Jesus does not respond like he does in chapter 7. Sometimes Jesus will answer these Pharisees' questions straightforwardly or sort of cryptically like he does here. But then we get to Mark 7, Jesus had enough, right? Jesus is, 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 is God, so he can give grace upon grace, right? But when he was doing his earthly ministry, this might shock you because he might not have heard this before, but he isn't very patient with these Pharisees all the time. And Mark 7, which we'll get to in a few months, he says 
you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Thus, you invalidate the word of God by your tradition. So in Mark 7, he just says, you guys are just off your rocker. You guys don't care about the word of God. All you care about is your rules. But here, he doesn't sharply do that. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't condemn them with this accusatory question. Instead, he responds to their question with a question. He asks them in return, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? Now, it might seem strange to us, but Jesus said that the best answer to this question is seen in a wedding. Now, think, think with me for a second here. You guys have all been to a wedding, right? A few of them, probably. I'm going to officiate one next weekend, so it's fresh in my mind. A wedding is a time of great joy and festivity and love and celebration, right? For most people. It's, it's, it's a time for fun. It's a time for laughter. It's a time for eating and drinking. And maybe, if you're not too Baptist, a little dancing. Right? That was supposed to be funny. Everyone at the party, at the wedding, is happy. So who, might you say, though, is the happiest? The bride and the bridegroom, I hope. So Jesus here is likening himself to the bridegroom and his disciples as the attendants, who for our sake can be viewed in a similar way we would view the role of the groomsmen. What Jesus is saying here is that while he, while he is with his attendants, while he is with his disciples, that's not a time to fast. It's a time to party. It's a time to soak it in and enjoy. Enjoy the precious time. And in the Jewish tradition, this, this, this party could have lasted for seven days. You know, and for us, it's over in a couple hours. But in the Jewish culture, it was, it could last up to seven days. So it was, it was an elaborate celebration. And, and all who were a part of it relished the pomp and the glory of the wedding. And so Jesus is saying that this, a wedding is obviously no time and place for fasting. He flat out says that a wedding is no time for such limitations. I mean, could you imagine going to a wedding? It, it, it's, it, it's been planned for, for maybe a year. It's, 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 they spent tens of thousands of dollars. It's got the best food. It's got the best wine, if we're not too Baptist, right? It's got, you know, this massive, beautiful place where they have the reception. Can you imagine going there and saying, I can't eat or drink anything? You, you would be miserable. And so, so you see, see how Jesus is drawing on this, on this, this illustration to, to make a really clear point. 
He says, while, while the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. So, again, while the wedding is going on, the attendants are not supposed to be distracted from the priority given to the bridegroom by silly little religious traditions. In the same way, while Jesus is among and with his chosen disciples, they need to be 100% fixed on him. Why? Because just like all weddings, even if they last seven days, it's temporary. And at this, this point, Jesus is starting to elude the temporary nature of his ministry. Verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Taken away here refers to a sudden removal or a a violent act of being snatched away. You know what this is a reference to? The arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark where we see an allusion to this. And as we see, uh, as we will see as we progress through this book, we will see a gradual revealing of this revelation. The closer he gets to the cross, the more he talks about it. In Mark 8, for example, Jesus begins to pull back the veil and let others in on his ultimate purpose for coming. Mark 8.31 says, as he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Must suffer. Keyword must. Suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So clearly, Jesus was saying that the cross is no afterthought, is it? It wasn't an item on his to-do list. It wasn't an accident. To be handed over to the state, to be tortured, to be executed, was, listen, the main purpose for his coming. As I've said before, Jesus did not come to, to provide an example. He didn't come to heal the sick. He wasn't here to restore an earthly kingdom to Israel. Mark 10:45 says that he came to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. In Mark 2:20, Jesus alludes to that ultimate purpose. After that purpose is fulfilled, after Jesus is put to death, then they will fast. Then they will mourn. But until then, until Jesus is taken, snatched away, the disciples needed to redeem their time with him and forget. Imagine how this would have been thought of as so freeing. You're enslaved to traditions. Then Jesus comes along and says, just focus on me while I'm here. Don't worry about those traditions. Focus on me. So, in verse 22 and 23, there are two, two, two illustrations in the form of short parables. 
first illustration is about a wedding. Now, these two illustrations in verses 22 and 23 are in the form of short parables offered to further explain what we've already been discussing. According to one commentator, together these parables illustrate how the new and internal gospel of faith and repentance could not be connected to the old and external traditions of self-righteous Phariseeism. Now, a quick note before we sort of dive into these briefly. This is the first time in our exposition of Mark where we find parables. Therefore, I think it's necessary to define a little bit or talk about a little bit about what a parable is. A parable, first of all, the word, it's just a transliteration from the Greek word parabole. It's from para, meaning alongside, and balo, to cast or throw. So parable literally means to cast alongside of. So when Jesus speaks in parables, he was telling stories that were, quote-unquote, cast alongside of a spiritual truth in order to illustrate that truth. They were teaching aids. And they could be thought of as inspired stories. Comparisons. In other words, a parable is simply an earthly story with heavenly meaning. Think of it in, that, in those terms. A parable is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And they have, two, they, have, they have a twofold purpose. The first is to reveal truth to those who wanted to know it. And second, to conceal truth from those who were indifferent. Very important. Very important hermeneutical principle. The purpose of parables is to reveal truth and to conceal truth. The latter is plainly evident because we see Jesus sometimes end his parable with what? He who has ears, let him hear. That implies that some people weren't going to get it. Now, there's plenty more we could talk about, but I don't want to bore you to death. I don't want to lose you. I think I already am, okay? (laughs) We have to understand, though, that the basic purpose of a parable is to convey one meaning. To convey one point. And I say that because you would waste time. You would rack your brain mindlessly, needlessly, if you were to try to, to parse and, and, and dissect every minute segment of a parable. And I'll remind you of this as we go forward, but keep in mind that parables have one meaning. So that we're on the same page with regard to what a parable is and what it's not and what its purpose is, look at verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. Hmm. On the surface, it seems a little weird, doesn't it? It even seems like he's switching gears a little bit here, from a wedding scene to something sort of obscure. But I I submit to you, I don't think he is. 
I think he's continuing the theme of a wedding. Because clothing and wine are important components of a wedding. Especially the time of Jesus. And if you get ready for a wedding, you wouldn't just go to your closet, um, repair an old shirt, and patch it up with a nice new piece of fabric. Not only would the brand new piece of cloth not match the faded color of the old shirt, when washed, it would shrink and pull the garment, causing it to tear. So, just like we would today, if you're going to a wedding, you, you would either go out and buy a brand new shirt. Right, ladies? Right? How many times have, have you ladies gone to a nice fancy event, you walk into your closet full of clothes, and you say what? I don't have nothing to wear, right? And so it gives you an excuse to go shopping. Whereas the men might just dig something out of the bottom of the closet and iron it and call it a day. Regardless, you would simply wear something nice. You wouldn't get an old shirt and just sew a patch on it. The old garment would need to be replaced. So our Lord's point was this. The gospel of grace could not be patched into the legalistic traditionalism of Judaism. Does that make sense? Phariseeism is likened in this parable to the tattered, worn-out, faded garment. And nothing sewn into it or joined to it can make it profitable. In the same way, a new patch could do nothing for an old ripped shirt. The traditions of the Pharisees were like the old garment, and it was beyond repair. So Jesus is saying that he did not come with a message to patch up the old system. He came to totally replace it. Now, if that does not provoke some thought or move you, I'm doing a bad job today. Jesus came to utterly replace the dead religious system of the day. And the same message does the same thing to to the other works righteousness religions today. Now, look at the second parable real quick. Verse 22. No one puts new new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Again, today, we just have reusable containers, right? You might throw away your old wine bottle, but you could, if you want to, use it for something else. But in this day, the, 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 the container that was made to store wine, they were disposable. They're dispensable. They were the, these wine skins were made from animal skin, and as 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 the new wine began to ferment, gas would be released, causing the leather to expand. And what would happen? Just like your old belt, your old pair of shoes, the elasticity would would, would be lost. And they could break or tear or rip. So that sort of container would be useless to store wine, right? 
once used, the old wineskins were discarded. New wineskins were used to store the new wine because the old wineskin didn't have enough strength to hold the new wine. And so this parable, like all the parables, has one straightforward meaning. It's this. The legalism of Judaism, likened to an old used wineskin, could not contain the message of salvation by grace which is likened to the new wineskin. Jesus was intending to communicate that the gospel of grace could not be poured into the, the, the brittle, cracked wineskin of Phariseeism. In the same way that new wine was incompatible with old wineskins, the gospel is antithetical to any system salvation by works. Incompatible. They do not mix. So in closing today, the main point of this passage is clear, is it not? The crystal clear point is that the content of Christ's preaching was diametrically opposed to everything the scribes and Pharisees represented. And so the takeaway for you this morning is this. Are you believing in the exclusivity of the gospel? Or are you clinging to an old religious tradition to save you? Are you clinging to an old religious tradition to sanctify you? Does it offend you when people don't behave like you? And do you think others who do not mimic your traditions are inferior? Do you come into this building on Sunday judging others with no chapter and verse to support your view? Are you enduring your religion? Are you just going through the motions? Or do you love Jesus? Do you enjoy your walk with Christ? Do you love the church? Do you long to grow? Do you long to serve? Or is Sunday morning just another block to check on your weekly routine? I love you enough to tell you that if if, if that's true, you're not saved. If church is just another item on your list, you don't know Christ. Children of God live for him. They live for the Great Commission. And they use their gift that they've been graciously given to edify the body so that we could do our job. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is a means to do that. So are you enduring a religion? Or are you enjoying a personal, loving relationship with the Master? Those are all important questions for all of us to consider. 
And my prayer for you right now is for you to answer those questions by way of meditating on Jesus' answer to the Pharisees in Mark 2, 19-22. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, if there are any traditions that are resonating in my heart, Lord, please help me to put them to death. Oh, Lord, please forgive me for my wrong judgments of people. Please help me to be a pastor after your own heart, to, to, to be patient and, and to, to be bold and, and faithful in, in the calling that you've given me. I pray the same for every single person here, Lord. You have called us all to yourself. And you have given us a mission. You have given us a purpose. And you have given us work to do. Lord, if there's anyone who does not know you, if they're just simply enduring a religion and they're not enjoying you, Lord, please reveal the need for faith and repentance right now. Lord, help us to reject Phariseeism first in our own hearts and then May we have a burden to protect each other from Phariseeism. May we be willing to lovingly confront one another when there's evidence of a pattern of Phariseeism in our church. May we all yearn to serve you and love you and worship you. In Christ's name, amen.